Hello and welcome to episode 104 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual spike. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Stanislav, you got you got my favorite shirt on. And not not my favorite shirt, your favorite shirt. Your favorite shirt that I wear. Yeah, well, hold on. So it's it's your shirt that you wear that I like. Admit that you love it. I mean, I do love I mean, ba 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 ba. I'm loving it. For the people at home, my shirt has like some french fries being dipped into some ketchup, but the ketchup kind of looks like a little like breast pocket. It's like if Mondrian designed a, a McDonald's t-shirt. It's actually Yves Saint Laurent. Ooh. You guys know this is an audio medium, right? Also with us, the Godfather, Dave Harbarger. I have a shirt on too. I'm loving that one too. Yeah, it's not bad. Today, someone on a conference call told me I looked like a Christmas present. And I said... I'm calling HR. Yeah. I said, I, I look like a very middle-aged Santa, is what I said. Dave, you know it's an audio medium. <laughs> yeah, but I had better metaphors. Dave, um, do you dress as Santa Claus and surprise your children? No, but they want me to. He surprises his children in other ways, like weird facts. <laughs> do you guys know that? Do you guys know that Giant Spider was in every corset until M twelve? And my five year old goes, "Wow, Dad, <laughs> I'm loving it." Uh, do your kids still believe in Santa? Um, yeah, they're five and two. Yes, they do. I don't know. They have hipster parents that are probably like, holidays aren't real, kids. Grow up. Uh, guys, we are all in. This year, are you kidding me? We are all in on, on Christmas this year. Our house is a wonderland. It's been <laughs> it's been Christmas up for like six weeks. It's, uh, it's happening over here. As soon as the first snowflake is in the air, like NORAD announces snow is here, my, my wife and my, my sister-in-law, my mother-in-law... They, they slam that Christmas music. Yeah. 100 dBs. So this is our, our this uh, since this episode's coming out on that holiday. Oh, yeah, it is, isn't it? Likely, unless we get it together and release it a couple days early, uh, we would just like to say it's been nice spending 2020 with you all and uh, have a nice holiday week. I hope you get some time off. Hope you get to do some stuff. And even if this isn't your particular primary holiday of persuasion, I hope you have some nice rest. As we close out this unreal year. Yeah. Well said, Dave. On this week's episode, we're taking it to Mana Traders. As we attempt to qualify for this month's modern tournament, we'll discuss the metagame we're seeing in qualifier matches, what decks we had the most success with, tips and tricks for making it to the next round of the tournament for yourself, and how to stay sane when you're looking at a frustrating 30% win record. We're going to do our best to make a little time at the end as well to talk about some of these new Kaldheim cards that were spoiled last week. But first, a little housekeeping before the holidays. Shout out to new patrons to join the Dive Down Nation, Lucas D and Thomas M. Thank you so much for your support. Yeah, welcome to the Dive Down Nation. If you want to become a citizen of the nation, head on over to patreon.com slash the dive down. Join my favorite and only magic community on the internet that I have time, energy, and dedication to, um, to interact. But it's worth it because everyone in there is awesome. Uh, we also have some nice swag that goes out to you at various tiers. Uh, you keep us going. You keep us uh, doing what we're doing. You make it easy 
for us to do what we're doing. You know, were able to, of course, afford T Baby, our our favorite editor. Uh, but yeah, he's awesome. He, he he lets us he, he lets us do this with very low pressure on ourselves. And I, I keep thinking, Stan, remember when we would edit this ourselves? Oh gosh. Oh boy. Remember 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 how much uh how little I got to see my wife? <laughs> it was like Monday we record, Tuesday and Thursday I edit, and then we post it on Thursday and life's awful. But no, so thank you all of you for making this a, another awesome year of the dive down. We have so many awesome new citizens of the nation. Uh, I I love the community that we've been able to bring together and all of you make it what it is. So please, uh, if you've been interested, if you've been wanting to check out uh, the nation, head on over to patreon.com slash the dive down. If you want to check out a new way to support the dive down, go to untapped.thedivedown.com. That's right, untapped.thedivedown.com, where you can use our little affiliate link to download the magic arena dashboard app called untapped and you don't have to buy anything you don't have to sign up for any premium subscriptions all you have to do is download and use the app and we will get a little kickback and that's so that's a way to support us when you're playing magic without having to spend anything out of your own pocket untapped.thedivedown.com and then finally stan already mentioned them on this episode if you would like to support us while you're playing Magic, check out Manatraders.com. Manatraders is the card rental service that we've been using on Magic Online for years now. We love it. We wouldn't be able to, to modern without it, really. And um, if you put in code the dive down, all one word, when you sign up for the first time, you will get 15% off your first three months of card rentals. Manatraders.com. And this week, I think that we're going to have Stan on the news desk for a little appetizer of historic before we spend the bulk of the show on modern. Is that right, Stan? That is true. It's a, a historic amuse-bouche. Yeah. And once again, as is becoming a trend here, we're doing kind of a tournament report in the in the breakdown instead of a, uh, a meta report, right? That's right. So Friday morning, I wake up, I made some scrambled eggs. I like it. How much rest did you get? Two hours. How much hydration did you have? None at all. Oh, my, my dude. Do you have granola bars with you? Absolutely. Caffeinated cliff bars. Because you were getting ready for a tournament. So last week, SCG Premium subscribers got an email with a free invitation to one of the SCG Tour online satellite qualifier tournaments. Who noticed that, Stan? Shane noticed it. Yeah, who, and who, who just gleefully gave that up to my co-hosts? Flagged it, encouraged <laughs> us to play. Forwarded it on. And on a whim, I decided to take the bait because the format for the weekend was historic. So for those unaware, the SCG Tour satellites are six-round tournaments. They're entirely on MTG Arena. They're organized via MTG Melee and conducted on Discord. They cost $6 to enter. And if you go four, two, or better in this tournament, in the satellite, you get entered to play in a Sunday tournament for cash, gems, and what I think are also invites to PTQs, because there's another invitation you can get if you perform well enough in the Sunday event. The Kaldheim Qualifier Weekends, or you know the, the Qualifier Weekends, I think they're called, are what you get entry to? Yeah. So without going into too much superfluous detail about my diet and actual Friday schedule, it did turn out that uh, my Friday night spontaneously opened up and I made this last minute decision to jump in and see what happens in this tournament, figured maybe I can have a, a good story to share on the podcast afterwards. It probably goes without saying that these are best of three events. 
And for anyone who listened to last week's show, you might recall, you know, on our very historic forward episode, I shared this position that Neo Storm is an awesome historic best of one choice, mm-hmm. but it's a little too easy to hate. And, and maybe the lack of hand smoother made best of three matchups disproportionately harder. You guys remember when I said that? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Love the take, Stan. Love it. So naturally, I slapped together a half-baked sideboard and registered Neostorm for a best-of-three tournament with open deck lists, by the way. Open deck lists. So they know what they were going up against. (laughs) But you know what? I knew what I was going up against as well. Something tells me that you're at a disadvantage in that situation more than other people, but you think so. Long story short, fueled by envy and rage after Dave's effortless path to day two in last week's Arena Open, I managed to play really well. And I finished 4-2 in Satellite 3 to qualify by a hair for Sunday's Invitational 5K. Oh, my man. Hey, way to go, man. Thank everyone's, you. Everyone's killing it. They're getting 60% win rates or so. I don't know what 4-2 is. That's, is, that, uh, is that 80? That would be 66.6666667. Oh, man, man, my dude. Heck yeah, dog. That's, I, that's, like, that's almost like making day two at a GP. Almost as good. Some would say even better because I got to do it from home and watch television in my downtime. That's a good point. So this is not a full-on tournament report. I'm not going to talk about what I played against match by match, but I do want to talk briefly about the tournament itself as a whole, and likewise some lessons I learned about Neostorm after what was essentially 12 matches with it across two tournaments. So this is my first headline of the breakdown. If you are an arena player and you're craving a higher level of competition than the events and occasional opens that you can find on the arena platform itself, I highly recommend checking out one of these satellites. That's a long headline, Stan. That's like filling up the whole top of the fold there. News in from Europe. If you're an arena player and you crave it. Stop. Need higher level competition. Stop. Stop. So it's six bucks for six rounds. That's that's just a dollar per round. And although you do have to finish 4-2 or better to make it to day two, I felt that this was more paper-like than any online tournament I've ever participated in on MTGO or elsewhere. Interesting. The use of Discord as an event hub was so seamless and amazing. SCG staff, highly present, solves problems whenever they arise, questions, technical difficulties, what have you. There's a room for judge questions, which is kind of interesting for MTG Arena because you'd think that those don't come up, but the room is there should you need it. I even saw someone get DQ'd for behavior issues. Oh my goodness. In an online tournament on Magic Arena. So it just felt like the real thing. You know what? Good for them. I'm glad that I'm glad that that SCG got in there and was kind of like, we're taking this as serious as we do with our, our opens and everything. Totally agreed. Just because you're behind a screen, you know, typing on a keyboard, you still got to be a nice person. Yeah, just because all you're doing is spamming one of five emotes, that still can be bad. I mean, just because Casper does it. <laughs> I'm not going to go into detail about, like, the nature of the DQ. I don't have any details. I don't want to speculate. I think it was more than just spamming emotes. I think someone made some comments in Twitch chat that tournament mm. staff got hold of and decided to act. But again, like, this is kind of just... a informed guess. I I really don't have details. Interesting. Likewise, in addition to how cool Discord is, MTG Melee is a very well-designed tournament management platform. It makes it really easy to track your performance across a tournament in general. There's also a voice that comes on when new pairings are up, which is really handy if you want to walk away from your computer during downtime between rounds. So because I was playing a combo deck, 
it was not uncommon for me to be done with at least 30 minutes left in the round. And I would just turn my speaker all the way up, walk into the other room, turn on some Netflix. I was watching Alice in Borderland. And then when it was time to play the next match, I would just walk back over to my computer, combo off, rinse and repeat. Repeat three more times at least. Also, I never knew this prior to the event, but you don't have to friend request strangers on arena to play in tournament style of matches with them. Oh, nice. There's a challenge icon top right corner lets you play against people in best of one or best of three in basically any format. Well, that's that's almost like a tournament functionality in the flagship product of never mind. They're inching their way. Last but not least, MTJ Melee also has an internal chat function that pops up when you're being paired with an opponent. So you can actually talk to whoever you're playing against if you want. Dave, this is like where you say don't open the chat, right? I don't often do it, no. I did talk to some very nice people this week uh, in the Mana Trader series, but um, so that was good. But it, it does open up automatically, Dave, so you would have to manually close it. But by the end of the night, the tournament goes from like it's six rounds. It went from like six to midnight. So by the end of the, the night, the last two or three matches, there were no words exchanged between me and my opponents because I think everyone's just tired and ready to go. Yeah, they're like, let's just go. In terms of the actual tournament itself, the metagame was pretty predictable. My biggest surprise was I faced against back-to-back red-black Arcanist matches. But I've, otherwise, I was playing against a lot of the usual offenders, Sultai, Sacrifice, Goblins, and Paradox Engine. Do you guys have any questions about the tournament before I talk about Neostorm more specifically? Where did they send your check? Direct deposit. Ah, oh, good. So tournament's worth it. SCG stuff's worth it. People should keep an eye out for it. That's that's the main message here. And if you want a very paper-like experience, this is probably the closest. Exactly, yeah. You got to be on MTJ Melee. You have to be on Discord. You have to be willing to commit six hours if you actually can manage to go all the way. But... All that being said, if you're looking for a higher level tournament and you're strictly an arena player or a primarily arena player, I recommend these highly. I think they're really cool. Stan, so you've been kind of hinting that you think, you know, Neo Neo Storm has been a deck that you've said, hey, you're going to play some best of one, not best of three. Mm-hmm. Uh, why do you think it's it's doing better than best of three than you thought? I think I was maybe a little unfair to the deck when I said that it's bad in best of three. I mean, and here- cyborgs do exist. Right. And that was kind of one of the biggest things I learned. So here are some of my takeaways after 12 some odd matches, as well as like other matches I was playing on the side in parallel to the tournament, let's be honest. First things first, this deck mulligans really well. And one of my heuristics is frequently just trying to mulligan to one of my two combo pieces. And I got to the point where I managed to win a few games after mulliganing to four. Wow. And All I... Right. I I can't think of any other deck where I was able to do that repeatedly. So maybe this is just, I got very lucky a couple times in a row. But I also think the interaction in this format, compared to the overall speed of this deck, makes mulliganing a little less punishing, since I'm not looking for critical mass. I'm just looking to line up a couple cards. Additionally, to Shane's point, because of the colors of this deck, it's based in blue-green, but it can also play black or red. It has a ton of sideboard options, that really helps solve the deck's specific problems. Yeah, what do you think the biggest problems besides Graph Digger's Cage, of course? Like counter spells or what? Counter spells don't come up as often still. I didn't face off against a single blue-white control deck, and I feel like counter spells aren't really the thing you're worried about in mid-range matchups. Cage is still huge. Authority of the consoles is still huge. 
But also opposing combo decks are kind of a problem. And one of my losses was against the Paradox engine deck. And what I eventually ended up doing was devoting seven cards in my sideboard to destroy artifacts. Three of those were Wilt, which can also deal with authority of the consoles, or I can just cycle it to find a card if I need it, if it's rotting in my hand, if it's wilting, Mm -hmm. if you will. And I also decided that I should try playing Wall of Blossoms because I was having some tough matchups in my practice with this deck against red aggressive decks. And I thought Wall of Blossoms is an interesting sideboard tech because this is something that sees main deck play in other versions of Neostorm. But it was ultimately a, a nice cantripping roadblock against aggro decks that I can bring in instead of something like Wishclaw Talisman, which can be a bit slow. And I think saying as a blanket statement that Neostorm is bad in best of three just overlooks two things. And this is one of my biggest takeaways. Turn three kills are so rare in this format that having a deck that can threaten those is truly big game. And I think part of that is also what makes the uh, Kin and Neostorm or the Kin and Paradox deck so powerful too, is that it can just combo off so quickly. And likewise, this Neostorm deck just has so much redundancy that going all in on a certain sideboard strategy makes them easier to find, makes these sideboard cards easier to find, uh, even if I don't draw them naturally. You know, I have Shimmer of Possibilities, but then when I'm siding in seven or eight cards that destroy artifacts, even if I don't tutor for it, I'll just draw it naturally 20% of the time, if not more. Mm-hmm. What are you taking out for your sideboard cards? I'm sure it's somewhat contextual, but is it mostly like do you start somewhere with it? Do you take out some of the cantrips or do you go a different way? Great question. So against Kinnon, you take out Wishclaw Talisman just because they play Karn. Mm-hmm. Stony Silence is bad. Sometimes I will take out a land. Depending on what I'm bringing in, I'll take out one of the pathways. This deck runs eight. Also, sometimes I will take out a single copy of Dualcaster Mage because you don't really need to have eight on the board. So even if I get down seven, because I took one out, or even six, the fact that I can attack twice with Combat Celebrant just makes each additional dual caster mage a little bit of a win more. And that's, a, mm-hmm. I think, a little flexible spot that isn't crucial to me actually comboing off. Sometimes I'll take out Into the Royal for more targeted hate. Sometimes I'll take out... Um, depending on if I'm on the player draw, maybe I'll take out a goose. Maybe I'll take uh, out the two mana elf mana dork whose name mm-hmm. is escaping me right now. Paradise Druid, yeah? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Okay. But, but that's about it. Nice. So back to the tournament. One of the cool things about Sunday's 5K is that you have to go X2 or better to cash or earn any price support. But on top of that, you are automatically eliminated as soon as you hit your third loss. So you can't do the classic stand maneuver of playing the whole tournament. <laughs> yeah. Well, stand, stand starting 1-3 and then ending up 5-3 yeah. or something like that. Exactly. What's the X look like typically on the on the positive side? Like how many how many wins are we looking at here? Like it was five? nine rounds, wasn't it? Wasn't it nine rounds for you on Sunday? It is nine rounds. Oh, goodness. You have to do X2 or better for any kind of prize support. And depending on your breakers, you can go X2 and not get qualified for the next round or get cash. But bare minimum, they give you gems. I don't know how they even put the gems in your account. I wish I had done well enough to find out how, how I can get some gems from SCG. But you can get gems. 
Yeah, I was wondering about that too when I saw you say that they gave gems. I was like, oh wow, they're authorized to give out in-game currency as prize. That's pretty cool. Yeah, they probably give you some kind of code. Yeah. And I'm guessing since this is a road to PTQs, maybe this is a road to the Pro Tour, they probably have some kind of affiliation with Wizards that the standard SCG paper tour doesn't. Yeah, they when this, they announced this whole thing, they were some of the first people to be allowed to hold tournaments on the platform. They were kind of like the pi- the beta testers. Yeah. Also, Stan, um, some of the SCG late and later in the game did start getting uh, sort of players tour, pro tour, mythic championship, whatever you know you want to call them. They were getting in. Uh, they, that was a path. Oh, cool. Yeah, they were getting invites. Yeah. So I ended up finishing 3-3 on Sunday, which is fairly far. Uh, I did feel like I lost my last two matches due to some misplays, either due to fatigue or maybe distractions. I also found that red-black decks in particular are a very tough matchup for Neostorm. That, you know, basically those games have to go absolutely right for me. And I specifically struggled against both Arcanist and Sack, but had a better record against Junsack. Mm-hmm. Sack because it can do a lot of instant speed tricks with things like Oven, Butcher of the Horde, Priest of Forgotten Gods, and Mayhem Devil. And then the Arcanist deck can just play these repeatable Duress and Thoughtseize effects that strips my hand up. and is really punishing. Yeah. I don't know what card you think Butcher of the Horde was in the Sack deck. That was a Mardu rare from Khans. Oh, what's the Butcher, the two-mana haste that gets a counter every time it connects? Dreadhorde Butcher. Dreadhorde yeah. Butcher. Okay. Yeah, showing my age. In terms of the actual matchups, I went undefeated against Goblins. I won 66% against Sultai. I won two out of three matches there. 50% against Paradox. Won one, lost one. Which is basically my way of saying, I did not ever feel like a dog in any matchup except against the Rakdos decks. But maybe I ran hot over the course of the tournament and some of those matchups do generally fare more poorly for Neostorm and I got lucky. But I never really felt like it was an uphill battle in, in some of those matches that I played, especially against Goblins. I, I actually felt kind of favored. I mean, you won like what? Like you won a total of seven and five, right? So that's like that's like winning one more than you lose, like on a given day of like 50-50-ish. So that's I mean that's that's like normal, right? You know what I mean? Like you you ran hot early and then you know you had an even day on Sunday, and that's kind of like, you know, that's what happens to I think most most better than average players, and I think you're better than average, Dan. Thanks, Shane. I'm happy being average plus. What an endorsement. Merry Christmas, Stan. <laughs> Enjoy your compliment from Shane. <laughs> okay. In conclusion, if you want to take your magic competition to the next level, I personally endorse these satellite tournaments and think you should check them out, especially if you're an arena player. They are long, but they are quite cheap. And the ceiling on prize support for or ongoing tournament entries is really high. So I'm pretty sure you can play these as a path to the Pro Tour if that's a goal of yours. Uh, And if you don't care about Pro Tour and you just want to test your chops with a deck or with a format, you already know SCG Tour is a great tournament organizer to do that. And now you can do that from your house. And on some levels, I'm hopeful that this continues in a post-COVID world where we can continue to play these types of high-level arena tournaments through Star City Games, even when we can also meet and play in person. Yeah, I I hope that it's like, you know, I hope that they add it to the suite of events, right? Like, I think paper would be great to have back everyone. I think most people want to have that back. But then also 
for all those people like west of the Mississippi, I would love to have access to some kind of SCG type events. I think it's just it's nice for people to you know play where they don't have to travel. There's lots of good opportunity for that. And I remember you know, that's the kind of stuff we talked about with uh, with Cave Dan back on our back on our episode when you know Dave had to take a take a week off and we had Cave Dan on and just talking about you know the benefits of being able to play online. Good memory, Shane. I. I kind of forgot about that conversation so many episodes wasn't that like six months ago yes yeah but it was during it was during the, was the, during the bad this. times yeah yeah all right well thanks for that tournament report stan and hey do you feel like you met your goal now you said you wanted to make a day two on the last episode was this sufficient or is there a larger one that you still want to shoot for i would say that i technically made the goal <laughs> It's all up to you. It's your goal. You know, the goal is always to just get published on Goldfish and try to make some money in the process. And I did get published twice through both of these tournaments. So now I can, you know, direct people to my little MTG IMDB account. That's great. All right. Sweet. Good work. Thank you. Good work. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, that's it for the breakdown for this week. And we are going to move on to the dive down where we're going to talk about another tournament series with a different card vendor in a different (laughs) format. So stay with us. All right. First things first, Dave mentioned, we're going to talk about different tournament organizer. Everyone knows we've been working with mana traders for a while and you know, it's an important disclaimer, right? Like it's an episode. This is primarily about the Mana Trainers Modern Tournament. You know, we weren't paid for. We weren't asked to promote this episode. We weren't asked to make this episode. This is this is all our idea because we thought, hey, we've talked about these and we've even played in them, but we haven't really talked a lot about what it's like to play in them and what it's like to succeed and what it's like to fail in them. And some of us succeeded, some of us failed. We'll get to that. Spoiler: I failed. Uh, without <laughs> with that out of the way. Uh, let's recap quickly what the Mana Traders Tournament Series is, what it's all about, how it works, who can play it, and maybe how you can think about approaching playing it uh, to potentially improve uh, your success. So first things first, what it is, Mana Traders have been doing these things. are monthly Magic Online tournaments with a cash payout, free to enter. You don't even have to be a Mana Trader subscriber to participate yeah number one reason we're talking about this is that it is a free tournament i mean the scg tournament was close reasonably close to free right six bucks is good value this mana traders tournament free free yeah so you'll notice like when you kind of go to sign up it'll be like hey you can't get the top tier of stuff without like a mana trader subscription you can be like i don't care you can be like okay well maybe you know i'm maybe i'm already using mana trader suite maybe i'm not i can think about using it you can use our code the dive down all one word Last time we'll do that. Last time we'll do that on this episode. We're not going to plug the code anymore. The thing is, the one thing I would say really quickly too is the thing that's interesting about the free versus paid level of support is that when you are a mana trader, you get basically ten times the amount of prize if you win a prize if you are a subscriber. That's a lot so of times. Just keep that in mind. Like the person who wins this tournament, if they are a mana trader subscriber, will get four thousand dollars. The per- if it's someone who is not, they get four hundred dollars a lot of bozos before all of these card rental services existed people did buy magic online cards so there is a population of players online who actually have an empty joe collection so if that's you you can participate in these absolutely for free without signing up for a mana trader sub you have to get a mana traders account to log into the platform and and the dashboard is how tournament games are organized but 
It's free real estate. It's it really totally is. free real estate. So um, how does this work, Dave? Well, every month, Manitraders rotates through different formats, right? They've done Legacy, they do Standard, they do Modern, I, they've done Pioneer. That Those are kind of the four that they, that they do right now. Um, and how it works is you go and sign up and tell them that you say that you want to enter the pool for the tournament. And what you do is you go to a special page on Manitraders' website where you say, yes, I'm ready to play a game now. Yes, I have my deck ready to go. And it pairs you just like Magic Online does. But the outcome of that pairing, which I think is fascinating, by the way, that it works um, at all somehow, uh, it will pair you to, gives you some special instructions that basically say, go to the tournament practice room, find this other player and play a match against this other player. And then that's it. Somehow, Manitraders is even able to record the results of the, the tournament without anybody entering in the results. And that is like the most mind blowing thing to me, but it seems to work. It's sweet. It's it's very fast. It's very seamless. Yeah. It really feels like a very like well thought out platform. I mean, these are folks who have an extensive bot chain on Magic Online, so I guess I shouldn't be too surprised that they figured this stuff out too, but works great. Okay. So one of the novel things I think that's interesting about the tournaments is that the the amount you have to win is dependent on how many matches it takes you to get there. And so what I mean by that is let's say you have to play a minimum of 10 matches, right? Okay. If you win, if you go seven and three, then you're good. Like you're immediately good. Like if you, if you win seven out of your first 10, you hit your 70% win percentage and you're like, okay, great. I'm qualified. I'm off to the races. Everything from now on is, is gravy. So between your first 10 to 19 matches, you can have a 70% win percentage. 20 to 29 matches, if you ever hit a 65% win percentage, you're good to go. Or a 60% win percentage if you play 30 or more matches. So you can do the various math permutations on that. But basically it's, you know, if you win, if you win 60% or more. By the time you play 30 or more matches, you're good. 60% yeah. is not so bad. Like, what is that? Like 18 and 13, 18 and 12? Maybe, yes. maybe it's a little bit less than that, perhaps. It's 18 and 12. Okay. It's straight up 60, 60% I get, on I 30. I even guessed it. Man, my, that, that lingering mathematical ability is still there. Well, you weren't gifted and talented, Shane. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Above average, some would say. Um, but what's cool, I guess, is if you play more in the Swiss... Uh, you can get better leaderboard prizes. I, I, I've seen this. I don't really get it because I haven't uh, been able to convert into a good win percentage yet. But So there's two opportunities to make money. One is in the actual tournament that you qualify for. I believe it's top 32, maybe top, top 16, get some kind of cash support. During the qualifier period, if you are in the top 10 on the leaderboard in terms of points earned through matches played during qualifiers you can get additional cash prize yeah which is very cool it's a way to keep some of the good players in the pool playing against some of the people who are trying to qualify which is interesting but also it just incentivizes people to play as many matches as they can on this platform by giving them extra prizes so it's a smaller prize pool you know the person who's first place on the leader at the end of it gets um gets a thousand dollars but um so it's less than the than the tournament but it's it's a fun incentive and again it's free it's free 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 so let's say you play 30 matches you win 18 of them what happens if you actually qualify what do you qualify for 
So you qualify for a day two tournament, Swiss tournament, just kind of like what Stan was describing for the Star City games, that basically it is the f- the last Saturday of the month, and then they put their top eight on the, f- the Sunday after it, and top prizes go to the top 16 people who make it. So, you know, it's just all about cash. There's no extra invites or anything out of this like there is with Star City Games, but but there you are. It's great. It's just a big tournament that you get to. I'm not sure how many people typically qualify for that day two. You know, if it's, uh, you know, I think that Stan, you mentioned the 5k that you were in with Star City Games was like 230 people or something like that. It sounds about right. And I believe past manitrader swiss tournaments were north of 200 as well I, yeah i want to say i've seen some go almost to 500 i was gonna say i would think that they would be closer to something like five four or five hundred just because of how much time people have to qualify for it with but you know it's like a big big old gp right and that's kind of i think what all these tournaments are trying to recreate the experience of is just an open large pool tournament for some real money which is great Okay, so that's the tournament, but how do we fit into all of this? Well, this this episode is actually about us just describing different tournament structures. So Stan <laughs> talked about the Star City Game one. Now we talked about Mana Traders. I think next we're going to talk about the Energy series that was also over the weekend. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll revisit paper paper tournaments. How we yeah. you know when how you and I both of day two GPs, Dave. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh God, we, we live the glory days. Wow, I will get my I, revenge. That's so funny. But Stan, you kind of conceived and concepted up this episode. What's this episode really about? I think this episode is a classic dive down episode in its own way, because we decided to try our hand at qualifying in the name of science, but also glory. Yeah, I definitely feel like I participated in a we did it for science sub episode here. But it's just a little bit of a tease about my segment here. I made you do that. So yeah. Dave made me do it for science. That's right. Right. So, I mean, and part of this too is, you know, we realized that we could put some time into trying to qualify and then put out an episode on Christmas Day that would leave people a few days after that to try and make a run at qualifying themselves. And so we thought, hey, maybe we can get some perspective on and things to think about and things to look out for from the matches that we managed to cobble together as a team. Also, don't delay. If this is something that you're thinking about doing, the qualifying period is only open until next Tuesday, December 29th. But the good news is, if you haven't started playing yet, you just have to go 7-3 and three in your first 10, 10 matches to make it in time. So that should be pretty easy. There you go. Especially after you hear this episode, you'll, you'll have an unfair advantage over all of your opponents. Okay, so what we're going to do first is we're going to talk about the types of players and the things that you should think about when you're starting to get into this tournament. You know, Opens and Grand Prix have certain kinds of people there. We think that there are some kind of archetypes of players that show up for this tournament as well. That's right. I sort of see... Well, I want to talk about the most important player that you're going to face. It's the fish, and that's me. (laughs) (laughs) I have you as the fifth category, actually. (laughs) 5A. All right, so I, I sort of see four to five types of players participating in this type of event. The first one that you are certain to encounter is the best deck players. These are the folks who are registering Uro, Prowess, or Heliod, and for good reason. These are arguably among the top three performing decks in modern in general. So inevitably, you're going into run into them while trying to ladder at some point. Mm-hmm. Player two, our second persona, the metagamers. These are the spikes who register 
Bogles because they're expecting a room full of prowess or infect when they think opponents are just going to be playing Titan decks all day. Whatever the perceived metagame might be for a given weekend, the metagamers are going to try to go one step above the room with a tuned archetype that doesn't see a lot of play but can potentially exploit a known entity. In case it isn't clear, there's going to be some overlap with these categories because our third persona are the go fast or go home players. For qualifiers like this, it's a race to a certain win percentage. So registering something like Prowess, Burn, maybe even Storm, something that you know could potentially have a turn three kill and explosive games also makes a lot of sense. And there's going to be people who are going to try to operate in this space. Yeah, like if if you're like, hey, I need to go 7-3 in these first 10 matches and you're saying, hey, I'm going to, I think I... Maybe I'll spike this. I'll just win my first, I'll win seven on my first 10. I can be done with this. I don't need to play 30 matches or so. I don't have a lot of time. We'll talk a little bit more about that sort of, you know, percentage thinking and high variance thinking a little bit, but that's definitely uh, some people's proclivity, including my own. Yeah. Also me. I pretty much did that. (laughs) You did a lot better than I did. Well, results aside, that was my thinking mostly. The fourth one that Stan has written up here. Uh, is an archetype that I think you see a lot at open style tournaments, which is the deck masters. And so these are the kind of hardened competitors who just play. Maybe they have one deck on mana online, magic online, or maybe they have a few few decks, and they just are kind of like, "Yep, I am playing Tron. It's just me and Green Tron forevers because that's what I can do." And so that's another role that you'll definitely see, and that you should keep out for, especially the well known ones where you might recognize their names when you get paired up with them. And finally, shout out to the real homies. These are these are podcasters testing out weird tribal strategies like five color elementals or eight whack. Maybe I'm being a little tongue in cheek, but I do think there's something to be said about the quality of play in Mana Traders qualifiers versus typical games in tournament practice rooms. And I sort of see these free matches as an interesting difficulty level between actual free play and Magic Online leagues, where you can test your chops against the four groups above as a fun way to, you know, play matches at a higher level, even if your goal is not to qualify. Do you think, do you all think this is like any different than other tournament environments, especially right now? Do you think that the mana traders, people, the people that are playing in this are are, are you know, really significantly different in any way? I think the key difference is you might see more people in those first two buckets trying to grab the best deck or trying to metagame against the best deck because they're not tied to whatever their paper collection confines them to. Conversely, I also think that you're going to see more people in the third list that that Stan kind of put out there, which is the go faster, go home group. I think that there are more people who are going to choose aggro because they can just grind through matches and try to establish an early lead um, than maybe you would see at like a Grand Prix where there isn't really as much incentive to get done early other than if you just want to hang out at the hot dog stand and do nothing for 40 minutes in between rounds, you know? So what I think the effect that that has is I actually think that you see less of the deck master type people in mana traders because people aren't as tied to certain decks on magic online like shane like uh stan just said and i actually think you might see a little bit less of the metagame group because people are more easily able to move to the best deck does that make sense so i think you have people who are like doing the most established pillar and trying to do the fastest things 
versus the people who are trying to go next level and the people who are really stable. So I think when it comes to like real paper play, you probably see a lot more people who are like, I'm a Jun player and I always play it at my FNM every every night. And so that's what I'm or every Friday. And so that's what I'm that's what I'm bringing. That's the group that I think is missing a little bit from these online tournaments. All right. So let's do some small sample size metagame analysis based on the actual matches that we played. Try to derive a little bit of data here. Between the three of us, I'm pretty sure we played 31 combined matches. Mm-hmm. Looks right. And we also kept track of our opponent's decks across the field that we saw. So Dave, really quick, tell us what you played or and or played against. Yeah, so I'll just give you the top level. Like from my point of view, and I won't give you my record and stuff until later, but I was playing Blue Red Prowess, which suddenly apparently is having some kind of a little resurgence. I, I'll give the reasons that I picked it up a little bit later. But the decks that I really saw, I think kind of split into two things. Like one is I saw kind of linear aggro-ish decks. And then, but the vast majority of the matches that I played were against what I would call big mana decks of all different kinds. Hmm. So that would be Etron, Gtron, and Titan in kind of like in the loose kind of like archetyping that those decks share. Um, that's what I felt like I saw the most of from my point of view. For me, I didn't, I mean, okay, hold on. I played more in, I played a little bit more in the actual ladder of the event than I did in the tournament practice room, but I was sort of getting back into modern in a way. And I was trying a whole new deck and I'll get to that later. So I think I played 10 matches, uh, between, the tournament practice and the actual mana traders event. Mana traders event was kind of all over the place. Um, I saw like I saw a, a fairly rogue deck. I saw a number of you know ladder staples. I saw an up and comer uh, weird deck. I you know I, I saw a, a bunch of different stuff, but I don't think I saw any definite trend. I think when we combine all three of our experiences, I, it's, I'm still kind of fascinated with how little frequency we had like what our what our what our high hit decks have been like we're like two copies or three copies at the absolute most i i kind of think that we should list some of the decks our opponents were on to help illustrate this point that chain's making which is that yeah. there wasn't actually a lot of rhyme or reason or, or specific trends we were seeing so well, why don't you take us through the the list that you put together stan of the the archetypes sure so i I played five different decks since the qualifiers opened, but for the purpose of this episode, I played three different decks for 15 matches, which included Red Black Shadow, Is It yeah. Prowess Twice, Infect, Mardu Pyro, What? Jeskai, Jeskai Twice, Four Color Uro, Hardened Scales, Mono Red Prowess with Obosh, Esper Shadow, Humans, Scred, Jund Shadow and Five Color Elementals. I played against Five Color Elementals. No, it's wow. not possible. Believe it. I mean, I'll give you mine really quick. I played against Elves. Cool. Piloted by a, someone very special to me. Um, <laughs> I played against Green White Titan twice. I played against Etron once and Gtron once for a total of four big mana decks out of the nine matches that I have in so far. I played against Is It Phoenix? What? Unbelievably, I played against a mirror match, blue red prowess, and I played against hardened scales and oops all spells. Does that 
Is it Phoenix player? Know that we've made more episodes of the dive down <laughs> since the early uh, days. I didn't talk to them about that. You know, you guys have this, this, uh, people recognize your screen name. Nobody recognizes my screen name ever. So it's weird. Maybe that's good. Maybe that's bad. Maybe I'm just forgettable. It's okay. It's halo bender, right? <laughs> halo bender. Yep. All right. That's it. Um, yeah, I, I mean the 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 decks that I faced off that you perhaps I don't think you you did as I I mean none of you faced you said oops all spells but was that like the Charbelter version or was that like kind of the dredgy version? Both. It's the, it was dredgy main Charbelter side. Whoa. Yeah. Um, I faced Crabvine and an interesting sort of Golgari shadow. Like I didn't. It wasn't Jund. It wasn't Rakdos. I think it was just Golgari. Neato. But Stan. You put this together, like the, the, the decks that I think we saw the most of were was Is a Prowess. You all both faced scales, and I think I faced scales in the practice room. So maybe scales is trying to make a comeback. Uh Rakdos Prowess, of course, the four color Uro control pile, of course, and Selesnia Titan. Though I, I didn't play against that. It sounds like both of you did, or Dave did twice. I did twice, and I just know it's around a lot yeah. right now for sure. And 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 shadow there's a ton of shadow apparently it's not just rakdos prowess you know shane played against golgari shadow i played against esper shadow people like shadows it's a good card bront people cast shadows yeah i almost switched to it partway partway through my run now in contrast based solely on the metagame representation that you might find on mtg goldfish you might expect to see more uros or, or just plain rakdos shadow or helia decks and yet they happen to be rel- relatively few within our testing. And I think based on our experiences, making a plan meant to respond specifically to a perceived metagame might be a bit of a losing battle, since from what I can tell, a lot of the rhyme or reason to the Mana Trader's modern meta is that it basically spans the entire scope of the format, which is kind of cool if you're into modern, but can also make it really hard to have good sideboard plans if you don't know what you're actually going to run into but can basically just count on some flavors of shadow maybe some flavors of prowess yeah i mean i just think you need to have plans for those decks right like you need to have a plan for the shadow decks in your mind you need to have a plan for uroe decks you need to have a plan for titan decks and you need to have a plan for prowess decks and even if that plan is i lose like if you're just like i'm picking up a deck where i know that i'm gonna lose to those kind of decks a lot and i'm just hoping to dodge them which is a totally viable tournament strategy i I think that that's the checklist that you should have in your mind shadow shadow titan uro prowess is still kind of like what i'm thinking is at the top and then after that it's not interactive combo whether that's ad nauz or oops all spells but those are the boxes i would be looking to tick cool so let's get into the fun part let's talk about what we actually played and what we actually learned and some of the decisions we had to make along the way sorry i'd throw heliod on that list too probably at number six but anyway so why don't we start with you stan Okay. Let's hear what you played first. Sure. I mean, this was a real journey for me. I mentioned I played five decks since the qualifiers opened. Uh, those first five matches I played were for my personal enjoyment. It was before we even started working on this episode. So I'm not really going to talk about those in, in detail. <laughs> I don't even want to hear about them. You do? You want to hear about? You want to hear more about Elementals? No, that was before. That was before I even started the episode, Stan. That's a, that's an ancient history. But it was Elementals, for the record? Yeah, so it was five matches, uh, a few with... I, I, I want to say I played two with Elementals and three with Jeskai, Bloodsun, Spikes List. Ah, cool. And I went 1-4 across those matches. My one win was with Jeskai. 
big hole to dig yourself out of. Yeah. So when it came to work on this episode, I actually started with green, black elves. And I was the elves opponent Dave got paired against. For my first match. But we'll talk about that later on. That's bad EV. It sure is. So I, I picked elves because I thought it might be fast enough in a field without Plague Engineer. Just because Plague Engineer's representation has gone down a lot over the last few months. And I thought maybe I could have a little bit of success with that. As long as I could dodge prowess. Long story short, that plan did not go well. Yeah, it's hard to plan to dodge prowess, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Y'all forgot about Lava Dart, it sounds like. Y'all did. So at that point, I I played against three prowess matches in a row with elves. I won one of them. I beat Rakdos, and then I lost to two it matches. And I decided maybe I should switch to Bogles as a way to get under all these prowess matches I was seeing. That did not work out too well either. <laughs> what do you think was wrong with Bogles? I was actually surprised that I haven't. I didn't queue into a couple people doing that. I had one opponent play a turn one Leyline of Sanctity against me, and I was like, this is definitely Bogles, and it was not Bogles. Really? No, it was Oops All Spells. But So what, what went wrong with Bogles anyway? I stopped facing off against Prowess and <laughs> started losing to other aggro or mid-range decks because when i was on boggles i played against infect which just outraced me mardu pyro which just made a board full of elementals and chess guy that went over the top and then after all that i I was pretty dejected i i actually had to turn off mtgo and take a 24-hour break and cool my jets a little bit um but i decided to come back do some more research and i picked up my old friend ponza and that was when I finally started to feel alive. <laughs> Went home. Jimmy's like Grotto. The, 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 third, the third Stanislav vacation house <laughs> yeah. of Ponza in, in, in Wisconsin. In Waukesha, Wisconsin. Yeah, like I'm back in Utopia. Utopia sprawl, that is. <laughs> so I will say that I didn't pick up Ponza entirely by accident. It was on my radar before I played any matches for this episode. Because I've had this feeling lately, just in thinking about modern that not only is Blood Moon kind of good right now, but Ponza's also declined enough that people might not be expecting it. Since we don't really see Ponza in high-level modern results as much as we did months ago, earlier in the year. Mm-hmm. And really, by the time I picked it up, I was basically doing so out of frustration. You know, my previous mass- matches hadn't gone well at all, and maybe I can reset while also testing that theory a little bit. And I gotta say, it worked out fairly well. Once I picked up Hansa, I went on a win streak. I went five and four with that deck, beating Uro, Jeskai, Obosh, Esper Shadow, Humans, losing to Hardened Scales, Scred, Jun Shadow, and Elementals. Some of those losses I felt were winnable, winnable, others not so winnable. But in the end, I just basically came out feeling a little vindicated that Ponza is maybe a solid choice, at least for Stan for any more qualifiers that I decide to do before the open ends on Tuesday. Ponza is like, Ponza feels more like a consistency choice, right? Rather than kind of like a spike choice. Like, Hey, Ponza is like a better Jund or it's like, you know, I, I have a mid range plan. I can beat a lot of strategies. I'm not planning on flaming out or winning. I'm planning on just sort of like getting there eventually with a suite of cards that are doing good things. Right. So that's part of it. I think Ponza does a broken thing, which is turn to Blood Moon or turn to Land Destruction. And mm-hmm. if we looked at our metagame, 
we're not facing off a lot of decks running non-basic lands or mana dorks. And I think I found that I was able to maybe exploit this opening for turn two Blood Moons a little bit. It absolutely won. Blood Moon won me games, which is why you play Ponza sometimes. Can I throw out a second thing that I think Ponza does that's good, or maybe it still does that's good? Do you have Glorybringer in the list right now? Sure do. Yeah. It seems like a pretty good metagame right now for Glorybringer for a couple of reasons, but one of which is just... Spoilers for what I'm going to talk about. I think flying is just really good in modern right now if you're an aggressive deck. So, Dave, I have four Glorybringer in the deck. And, and they win games. And and that was the old build. I basically played a six-month version of Ponza. I didn't try to update it with Gargaroths or anything like that. I just yeah. found a deck list that worked for me in May. And it also worked for me in December. I'm going to talk a little bit more about deck selection later and kind of my thought process about deck selection as a concept for this tournament. But I want to hear about your processes for deck selection, too. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, so there's Stan's like mini report on his journey. Uh, I'm going to hop in here and give mine a little bit because Shane's is the most twisty. <laughs> and, and mine is the, is also kind of unsurprising. I think given that I said that, um, you know, I was playing Blue Red Prowess, which is a deck that I also loved like four or five months ago in modern. And when we started talking about doing this episode for mana traders, I was a little bit lost on what to play. Like Shane set mentioned earlier, you know, we've have been focusing a little bit on historic, you know, I've also in modern lately been playing things like goblins, which was fun, but I don't feel like I'm kind of like together enough or I have enough reps in on it to really put together compelling content here for it for another time and try it out in something where I'm going to have to play it 10 rounds. Basically I was heavily considering playing Rakdos Shadow, which I really like. And obviously the meta really likes as well, but I ended up being like, you know what? The first night that I sat down to play, I was just like, I'm just going to play what I want to. I haven't played blue red in a while. I don't think anybody's playing blue red. I'm just going to pick it up and play it. So I found the, the, one of the most recent five O's just plugged it into mana traders and went for it. And I just wanted to dip my toe in a little bit and just see where it went. And you know, my first round, I hit the pair me now button at like 930 <laughs> on a Tuesday night <laughs> on mana traders. And it was like, go, go, go with unto the practice room and find your opponent whose name shall be Stanislav. <laughs> and I was just like, yes. And I didn't tell Stan what I was on. He didn't tell me what he was on. I, I just showed up and then Stan played a turn one Lanowar elf. And I played a turn one swift spear off of a spire bluff canal. And I just put in the chat. Well, I see we're both back on our BS again. huh? <laughs> yeah. As soon as you played that swift spear, I knew that I was going to lose. Well, I, I was telling you in chat earlier today, I feel like you beat me all the time. And so I was just kind of like, after that first match, I was like, this is the only match that's going to matter to me in this entire tournament. Turns out that wasn't true, but it was a nice way to start. And it was fun to see a familiar face across the internet for a minute. You know, I chose to start with Blue Red Palace because of familiarity more than anything else. I didn't really think it was a great deck in the moment, like from external scouting or anything, but weirdly, it's coincided with a number of people suddenly picking this deck up again in the last couple of weeks. It won the the um, the modern super champs PTQ over the weekend, even. Yes. Which I didn't see coming. I believe that top eight also had regular old Boros Burn. It did. Oh, it did. It's We're going back... 
to uh, earlier this year, perhaps la- late last year. It's actually called uh, Is It Blitz, Dave? God, no, I will not. <laughs> I will not call it Is It Blitz. Wow, I'm just looking at this top eight now. Is it Burn and Ponza? Mm-hmm. We should have we should have registered for this tournament, but sorry to interrupt. That's okay. Ponza came in eighth. We will get back to that in a minute when we talk about what we think about the total package of what's going on in modern right now. But anyway, how did I think after playing it that is it blitz? Is it prowess fit into the meta? You know, I actually think it fits pretty well right now because of a couple things. You know, I mentioned a minute ago. So I've always I always liked the aggressive plan of prowess. And so this is the build that lets you play a little bit more of a tempo-y kind of game with your fast spells like uh, Soulscar Mage and Swift Spear. But this build has Storming Entity and it has Sprite Dragon. And you may remember... How many Sprite Dragon, Dave? Four. Oh, man. I was wondering if you went for the full quartet. I did, and I, I just accepted it on faith from the list that I pulled up. But the fact is, the point that I brought up to Stan earlier about flyers in Modern right now, I actually think is pretty good for aggressive decks because of dryad of the elysian grove being such a huge stop sign for decks that are trying to be aggressive and the with a prevalence of titan all over the place it's a good kind of way to be if you're an aggressive deck that wants to go wants to have some game against titan i think it's nice to have flyers in your package basically and so i actually really love sprite dragon this time through because it felt like it was providing something a lot extra with that flying whereas before when i played it i wasn't quite as as sure uh and then last thing of course is like having access to a few blue cards out of the sideboard is great having access to spell pierce having access to aether gust they all come in handy in certain matchups and especially aether gust is huge against titan decks of course um so i felt like it fit pretty well especially with the decks that i played against you know i got to play blood moon against the big mana decks i got to play aether guest against the titan decks i got to side in extra removal against the aggro decks and so it just felt like i was in the right spot you know i played against oops all spells and one of the main things i did against them was sideboard in three of braids and surgical extraction and i actually totally punted game two when i should have won when they went off and i pulled the wrong target out of their graveyard with surgical uh would you target and what should you have targeted i targeted salvage titan and i forgot that salvage titan has an activated ability that lets you exile three uh artifacts to bring it back to your hand and that was how it worked yeah i did not read the card i think that in retrospect that i was talking with lawson and mickey in the chat today about that a little bit i think that i probably should have targeted narcomoeba mm-hmm. so that narcomoeba doesn't come into play then vengevine doesn't have a chance to come into play you know you don't get the swords of the meek like it just sort of stops their whole reaction and then they just deck themselves but i mean i won game three against Upal's spells straight up by hitting their talisman their greenback talisman with a braid and then they never drew another black source after that and enough time to kill me Mm. so you know having the sideboard pieces was really really good in this deck basically and i had a couple of turn three kills too like again with this deck where it was just like oh my hand is light up the stage soul scar mage swift spear swift spear lava dart and two lands and then that's a turn three kill somehow (laughs) that that always feels good yeah it's like whoa um so i think that you know having against big mana decks it was good having path decks out there in green white and jeskai and four color is not great but you can kind of play around it and keep an eye on it 
I'm going to have to think about whether I really want to take this into Swiss because I imagine I'm going to see a lot more four-color Euro decks there. But I don't know. So I'm not sure if I'm going to come back to it. There was a pretty different builds, but um, we'll see. I think all the prowess decks are still pretty good. This is just my favorite one in a lot of ways. And the fact is, you know, I went seven and two. I don't think I mentioned that. I'm seven and two right now. I have to play one more match to formally qualify <laughs> because right now it's I'm already there. That I have, but I'm I'm going into day two, so pretty great. So, real question, Dave. You do you know that you have to play at like 10 a.m. on a Saturday, and it's it's a it's a GP. <laughs> Yeah, uh, this is, this isn't the arena open where you can come and go. Does your family know this? No, they don't. They don't know <laughs> this. So we'll see. It's it's the day. It's January second. I know. I talked to my wife about it a little bit. Um, I'm just gonna have to figure it out later. I mean, I'm glad that I got there. Yeah, it's a free entry to a tournament where I could potentially win some money. Um, we'll see what I play. It'll probably be something fast so that I don't have to pay a ton of attention to the computer, but we'll see. Dave, you saying as January 2nd is really bowing me out because I'm not going to, I'm not coming in to see you both over the new year or something like that. Old traditions. What a, what a bummer of a year. No Shaw's Crab House this year, unfortunately. Oh, oh I love Shaw's. Oh, so good. Good shrimp and good steak. Yeah. We go every New Year's stand. Those snow crab legs. Oh. Anyway, so I made it. I made it to another day two for the first time in a, in a couple of weeks. It's pretty, pretty wild. Just fueling my rage and envy all over again. Why? You should be. I was happy for you. You should be happy for me. We're happy for each other here. Hey, I'm happy for you. I just, I, I don't want to, I want to be as good as my co-hosts are at Magic the Gathering. So if, when someone sets a new bar, it just puts the onus on me to reach that bar. Yeah. Well, I got to get, do better in the, in a, the actual you know, day two events before I feel too much, too much better about this. Shane, let's, let's talk about you. Cause this was a journey as well. Yeah. I mean, it's more of an emotional journey than a physical one. Um, but aren't they all, uh, so I first started, uh, just going in with red prowess and it's a deck that I, you know, it's weird. I really haven't found a lot of success with red prowess. Like, I think I've actually found a lot more success with burn and sort of like, I feel like, Oh, isn't red prowess just better burn right now. So I was like, okay, what's an aggressive strategy that could win? I'm not sure how many times I'm going to be able to say the sentence to you that burn and prowess are not the same. I mean, decks. I understand that. I understand that. And I think I'd rather would play burn. Uh, That's fine. You don't have to care about protecting your permanence and in, in I know. burn. And so maybe you're a little happier with that, but so, okay, hold on. So, so I went in, I started with red prowess. I faced off against like two, uh, and then immediately it was like black based, aggressive, disruptive decks, Rakdos shadow and that rogue Golgari shadow build I talked about. And it was just like how I always feel when I play prowess deck, which is like, oh, fatal push kills my stuff. <laughs> and if I don't have stuff, my spells are bad. And that happens, you know, 75% of the time I play uh, these contemporary prowess decks with, you know, lava darts and other sort of one damage spells. And I'm just like, well, I don't care for that. I get destroyed. Uh, you know, it's a combination of, Bad mulls, potentially questionable mulls on my part. I don't know. I think Mickey was actually watching me. He can tell me if they were bad or not in our uh, live Twitch chat. But largely, I mean, it was just the kind of like, you know, the bad matchups against the against the bad draws and you feel bad and you're like, well, what do I do now? And I told Shane when he was upset in this moment that I had the hottest of hottest recommendations for him. 
And I said, do you, do you want to hear my recommendation of what you should do? And I was like, yes, I, I was, I was all ears. I was, I had an open heart for how I can not tilt at modern right now. Yeah. And so I said that Shane should try playing primeval Titan. Yes. And what, how did that strike you when I suggested this? I mean, I was, I was, I was all for it, especially because of, of Selesnya Titan. You know, you specifically were like, well, actually you just had played primeval Titan. And I think you were kind of like leaning towards play Selesnya Titan. I said, play amulet first. And then I said, no way play reclaimer. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, this is, there's a couple of reasons that this is kind of like doing it for science, right? Like this is kind of an up and coming deck. Uh, I've historically had a little beef with Titan and the land strategies that Titan supports in modern. And, and so I was like, okay, let's do this. Let's, let's have uh, a, a newbies look at, you know, a, a Titan based deck, see how, and this has a little bit of like the Ella Damry's call, a little bit of the toolbox effect that I've liked in modern in the past. So let's combine these two things and see what happens. So I tried to wrap my head around the deck in the tournament practice room for a little bit because I haven't played any strategies like this in the past. And so like I, I went in like the span of maybe two matches from being like, well, what, why am I playing Elvis Reclaimer? Like, what does this actually do here? Like, I mean, I get the flagstones combo, right? Everyone gets the flagstones combo. Yeah, I think this is a thing where, you know, you didn't play Magic during an era where a little card called Crop Rotation existed. And I think that that being around during like Urza's cycle at that point in time might have opened your eyes a little bit just to what the idea of just searching up a land can yeah. do. Right. And for sure, you know, Prime Evil Titan is based off of that idea. And part of the reason I think these decks have gotten popular, it's taken a while for them to get popular, really, is that Elvish Reclaimer is a little bit like a mini Prime Evil Titan that helps you kind of bridge that early to middle game until you get your Titan online. Sure. And what's the deck plays so many different lands and so many lands that, mm-hmm. like, after a while, you have so many lands on board that you just want to get more land triggers. It's like whether you're triggering Valakit or like another Field of the Dead trigger or like two Field of the Dread Dead triggers because you can get a uh, fetch land type thing off of the Elvish Reclaimer. And like when I first read Elvish Reclaimer, I was like, well, I'm getting rid of my Elvish Reclaimer. I was like, oh, I'm not sacrificing this. I'm just tapping it. That's good too. It's, re- it's reusable. So of course it's great early with the flagstones, but like it enables your game late as well for these important lands that you want to get into play. Um, one issue that I did have with the deck, and this is kind of like, I'm not trying to make a mini dive down here, but it didn't invalidate it, but I've really found that like I was, I wanted it to be more of a Valakit deck than it was. And there's only so many mountains that it doesn't, you can't really enable Valakit with the mountains in your deck. You have to have Dryad online. And when Dryad's online and you have a Titan, that combo is busted. Like right. that combo is just, is just bust, busto. And that is sick and r- very fun. But you have to have the Dryad online to really get going with your, your Titan Valakit triggers. Yeah. But, it's like, otherwise you're a field deck. Yes. Right? You are like a if, field deck yeah. for sure. And then you have, you have Valakit to close you out sometimes. But I think like my second or third test match, I faced off against Infect and I was like, oh, this feel this is going to be horrible. But then it's like they, you know, they have a turn two Blighted Agent and get me to nine Infect damage and I untap and Vala could trigger their entire board, clear everything. Don't even allow them to have like Ink Moth Nexus available because I can, I can, uh, 
fetch and get another Valakid trigger. So unless they have some kind of protection spell to work with, and it just buys me enough time where like I turn the corner really hard and I'm like, Oh, that's what this deck can do is like, you can untap on turn three or turn four and just go ham and clear up an aggro deck and then turn turn around and win the game almost instantly. And so, you know, went into the went into the qualifying matches feeling like I had some potential and did badly. Uh but that's what happens, you know? Like you face things like Crabvine and like this this Crabvine opponent it was insane. Like they went off so conclusively and so insanely where it's like, oh this is this is this makes Dredge look like like a little baby deck because like they're, you know, uh, glimpsing themselves, I think where it's like, they're, they're milling 10 and getting like, you know, two triggers of chill. They're getting prized amalgams and venge vines out of the graveyard. It's so easy for them to fill the board. And, you know, game two, I'm hard mulling for graveyard hate, but like a single relic of progenitus doesn't really look good when their first extra supplier hit is like a venge vine and a grave crawler where it's like, Oh, like I'm gonna have to pop this extremely quickly, but anyway, yeah. I mean I'm not gonna go into every matchup here, but like you get the idea. It's like you know I, I face down Crabvine and lose very quickly. I face down Amulet Titan, and they can go faster than you. Like you know a double explore. Like Arboreal Grays are in a double explore into a turn turn three Titan with mana to cast Dismember on top to like kill my my Dryad of the Elysian Grove. It's just like the kind of stuff where it's like, this is modern, right? Where it's like, oh, you're doing your thing and I'm trying to do my thing. And, and you succeeded more than I did. So we we got to this point where you took Dave's advice to play this Titan deck. Yeah. Uh, can you refresh my memory? What inspired you to pick up Prowess in the first place? Oh, just because it's like, hey, this is an aggressive deck that has chops. And I know it has chops and, you know, I can I can beat down and and kind of play my conceptually like here's my i have a lot of experience with red based creature spell decks and why wouldn't it apply to modern right now sure so if if dave hadn't told you to play titan would you have just kept jamming prowess or would you have considered transitioning to something else that's a good question i probably would have played some more prowess just to be like hey let's get a, a fuller data set to report back on like here's what prowess felt like and i went one in six or something like that and um and see what happens but um yeah i i I haven't, I wasn't feeling amazing and I was glad Dave suggested something new because then it allowed me to say, Hey, I'm going to approach this with something fresh and I, I'm not going to probably go out there and, and, you know, win out and go like seven, one and qualify for day two here, but I can learn something new and experience something new and have something interesting to report back on, uh, based on what we're looking at. Right. Does this deck feel real to you? It certainly can feel real the 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 issue that made it feel less real was like my my the interaction that this deck has is some path to exiles right to mm-hmm. control control some stuff that's happening on the other side of the board and then potentially some valakit well it has it has skyclave apparition too yeah anyway, and skyclave yeah this the deck that i played actually had two skyclave which i i liked and actually did some work for me in a single game and would have if i would, would have been able to untap against uh, the Charbelter deck, which also turned three me two games in a row, like without even hitting their third land, either game. Um, it was just complete. I mean, it was just like the kind of magic that I was like, 
I'm not having fun. And I'll probably talk a little bit more about that in a second. But it was like, it was a science experiment in that where I liked the style of this deck and it was a different style of deck than I've played in the past. But it like sort of at the same time felt like another modern deck that I have to mulligan carefully with. I have to like, and I create just a different kind of inevitability. Like, is this really different than Dredge in the end? Or it's like, I need to execute my spells and their abilities in certain ways. And I'm doing something that fills the board with stuff. And then I, I'm able to attack without you attacking back into me, or I'm, I'm able to attack with your board being basically clear type thing. And I, I mean, I, I know that I'm sure that the Titan aficionados out there are like, well, of course it's not the same thing at all. But what I'm really getting at is like, I'm trying to execute my game plan with a minimal amount of interactivity with what you're doing, right? Although I think I think this deck actually has a lot of interactivity in it. In what its, way? Well, it's got it's got six cards out of the twenty-seven that are not lands. Yes, that are interactive. Number one, sure. yeah. Two of the lands are interactive. Yes. Plus, the sideboard has some interaction in it, and plus, there's other things in here like Ghost Quarter. That yeah. are that are there to do a little bit of interaction. That's the fun part about this deck. That's the that's the thing that I think makes this deck actually fun. Which is like I think that's fair to say, Dave. Where it's like this isn't this is this is different in, than Dredge in the way that you can stop what your opponent is doing or attempt to stop what your opponent is doing based off of the innate qualities of the deck, which is getting lands. And so whether that's like Bajuka Bog or Ghost Quarter. Or, they, or there's just all sorts of little fun lines where it's like, okay, I have a single bounce land because that allows me to bounce a land back into hand that I can replay that does something, whether that's gaining life or like bajuka bogging or just getting two or more land triggers to make more zombies or get more valakit type triggers. And so that's the kind of thing like this morning I was, I was actually playing a, a few more matches and uh, I was streaming and I had a couple uh, citizens in the chat and they were helping me figure out lines or suggesting lines to me. And it's interesting where it's like, Hey, like there's a multiple lines, right? Where it's like, how do I stop this mystic sanctuary loop? Am I ghost quartering the mystic sanctuary somehow? Am I, or am I bajuka bogging the graveyard after they cast their cryptic command? Uh, but I can't do that after they cast a cryptic command because they're going to tap down my Elvish reclaimer type thing. So mm. it's like, there's all sorts of, little interesting sequencing things and things that you have to think about that you don't normally think about simply because of the options that a deck like this offers you. So yeah, you do have like a very a fairly straightforward plan a, which is fast Titan because that's what all these decks really want to do. But all of the plans B and B subprime one subprime two are all kind of the interesting nuance that I think does make this style of deck more interesting and more fun. But then when you don't really have the time to execute on that, when you're turn three by oops, all spells or you, you know, your amulet Titan opponent turn three is their amulet Titan and you're not able to, it's like, well, these options don't feel like they're true options unless you're playing like, you know, my, my longest match was against something like the four color Uro strategy, which definitely gives you a lot of time and they were able to, to stabilize and capitalize on like a cryptic 
uh, Mystic Sanctuary loop, while their own Field of the Dead was in play, of course, because every deck's a field deck, and eventually take over and and swing it in their favor. And so I think that's the kind of thing that I think you feel interesting, you feel interested about until it's like 20 minutes into your match. And you're like, well, I guess they're eventually winning this. <laughs> so I mean, I guess it's like, I, I, I want my cake and to eat it too, where it's like, Hey, I, I want like some magical mystic modern format where we both are giving each other enough time to mess up or to, to win. And I don't know if that's there. I don't know if that's a reality. Wow. We're going to talk about my, are we going to talk about Wander for a little bit right now? I mean, we can. I mean, we can also save it for kind of like our, our perhaps end of the year uh, roll up um, in a week or two. But I mean, I, like, so like my, to summarize my general thoughts on modern, it's like, I feel like it's perhaps, I feel like a lot of decisions are made before I cast my first spell. And I don't always love that. Or it's like, whether it's my deck selection or my, uh, the tuning of the last three or four cards in the deck or my mulligan selections. Um, I just, I, I, I've in a lot of my matches recently, I haven't felt like my decisions really mattered in the gameplay. And, and I'm curious what you all feel in terms of like, am I winning this game by my decisions or am I getting like that last five to 10% by my decisions? Dave, you played Prowess. How important were your decisions in your path to 7-2? Very. I mean, Prowess is like the ultimate sequencing deck. Yeah. And so if you mess up the order of the cards that you play them in or don't see the alternate line that you have to be able to play cards in a on-its-face suboptimal way to unlock a path to victory, like that, that's how you win with prowess. And like when I did a turn three win, for example, like the way that I did it was to realize that I had to, you know, pre-combat lava dart, my opponent then cast, um, you know, I only had two lands when I, when I won on turn, I'm no, I had three lands. Um, cause I had four creatures in play, but the, um, you know, I had to like lava dart them, then cast light at the stage then play a card off of the light up the stage that I just got, then lava dart them again and gut shot them off of the gut shot that I got off of the, the light up the stage. And that was all pre-combat. And then I swung in like I could, if I had waited to play light up the stage in the conventional way, that wouldn't have worked right. Like wait to do it after pre after combat, yada, yada. I mean, it sounds like you're able, you're able to maximize your damage, which is really important. But like, I mean, also I'm looking at your list of decks you played against and I'm not seeing a ton of like, you know, lightning bolt or fatal push decks. I know I got very lucky with that, but that's, you know, like I said, I had a lot of the, I had a lot of big mana decks. Yeah. So you had to, you know, you're trying to race them and kind of avoid their interaction as well. Yeah. Although, you know, the two green, white Titan decks are path decks. And so yeah. I ate, I ate paths against those. One of the, the matches that I won against green, white, I ate three path exiles in the same game and managed to come out, come out with it, which is bad because there's no recourse in prowess against path exile. You yeah. just lose your creature. Um, you know, I, but I think that you have to think about like, Oh, I'm going to, manamorphose in this way in case I draw a Stormwing entity and like all kinds of different things like that. So it, it matters a lot, but I think it's sequencing that matters. And then occasionally you get to do some fake outs. For sure. I mean, what do you think about Ponza in that same kind of situation, Stan? Well, I, I think to try and answer both of your questions, it's kind of a matter of at what point in the game before, during, or, you know, before I start the game while I'm playing the game or, 
after sideboarding where you are making the decisions that are going to be most impactful on whatever your deck is doing. Because I, I agree, Pons is one of those decks that rewards good mulligans. And likewise, perhaps a little bit more importantly than Prowess, at least, it's one of those games where it rewards matchup knowledge. And you kind of have to know, based on like the first land or two that you see from your opponent, whether this is one where you go for the turn two Blood Moon, try to go for a turn two Blood Braid, and, and figure out that sequencing based on limited information. I, I, I do think that kind of what Shane's getting at is what we've been talking about since day one of this podcast, which is modern as a drag race format and mm-hmm. everything is happening really quickly. And, you know, one way to look at that is everyone's playing some flavor of a combo deck. I, I do just think you're on a razor's edge though. Yes. Like you said, like there yes. is no, if you make a mistake, you lose. It's magic on hard mode. Like it, I, there are parts of it that are magic on hard mode. Like you'll get four matches in a row where you win walking away. And then you get like the one match where you're like, like, Oh my God, I got to think about the next three decisions in such careful order to make sure that my opponent doesn't draw their two outer here because I know that they're digging for it. Like, I think that there's a lot rewarding in that still, but it's a knife edge. Like you, you, there's no margin for error. Here's something that I've just kind of been thinking about in the last 24 hours, though. The difference between modern and historic is A, the quantity of decks in the format, and B, how forgiving misplays are. But otherwise, I can't begin to tell you how many games of historic I played where my opponent was on Sultai or Kinnon, and there was nothing I could do to win just because their deck versus my deck was an unfair matchup. And I think that's a little bit a, an attribute of certain eternal formats that have really powerful strategies. Yeah. I, I think that you're right, Dave. And I actually want to talk about this later when we talk about kind of takeaways is that it's less modern is less forgiving of errors because it's a faster format. And it's, a, it's, it's less forgiving of errors, but it's also less forgiving of any kind of stumble whether that's a draw to your hate, whether that's a draw to an important piece of interaction, whether that's a draw to a missing land type thing where it's like, you might get that extra turn in pioneer. You might get those two extra turns in historic and you're not going to find that time in something like modern because you're going to get like double explored turn three tightened. Yeah. But on the other hand, your answers are much more powerful in modern. And so there's a chance that you can catch up more if you mull to the right spot as well. Yes. So, sh- so Dave, what you're saying makes me think of Shane's point about getting a threat fatal pushed. And I know how that feels too. I played no shortage of prowess and removal spells hurt. But I also think to your point about the power level of the deck you're playing, modern is the type of format where all of a sudden your opponent just starts drawing air and you can begin to outplay them while also maybe even let your deck recover too. So even though sometimes it feels hopeless, you still have to try to give yourself a reason to recover or give your deck a reason or give your deck the opportunity to recover too, because we're all playing with these powerful piles that have the potential to hail Mary. Yeah, I think so. All right. Maybe to be continued another time. Let's talk about some takeaways. Because takeaways about mana traders in particular, right? Like about this tournament series is what, yeah, what you're thinking. Yeah, and, yeah. And maybe there'll be a little overlap with just like modern takeaways too. We'll see how that goes. But, you know, in the matches we played, what are some of the things that 
you learned that you can you can both apply to your next Manitraders tournament and that people can try to apply if they're going to attempt to qualify in the next few days? Yeah, I mean, I'll go first with one of the ones that I thought about. I, I would say the number one thing you need to think about when you listen to this episode, if you want to come into Manitraders after Christmas Day when you hear this is... There is no time left, so please make sure you set aside time to actually grind out the matches you want to if you're going to do this. Playing 10 matches over the course of a few days can be time-consuming or not. So there's two places you can get time from, right? One is you set aside time to focus and grind out a bunch of matches and pick your deck that you like, but set aside the appropriate amount of time to do it. If you like to play ponza you're going to be playing longer matches than if you'd like to play prowess mm -hmm. just keep that in mind and make sure you like account for the time but you could also just play a fast stack and try to sneak in a bunch of matches as fast as possible i think either strategy is okay but make a decision about how you're going to allocate time for playing in this tournament if you're going to do it yeah cons conservatively if you want to play exactly 10 matches it's probably like four hours i'm gonna guess at least minimum so yeah oh minimum yeah i mean it it might be more like six because I, I played a, a league that took four hours, you know, and that's five matches. So I, I think you're in the like five plus range for the most part with pairing and all that kind of stuff. Like, just keep that in mind. That's the total time. What do you, what do you think about the tendency that I, I know that I have and I think you have sometimes, Dave, about like playing an aggressive deck in an unknown field? I think that right now for this particular tournament, the default is to play aggro and you should have a good reason not to whatever that reason is. Maybe it's because you're not an aggro player. Maybe it's because you're really good at Titan. Maybe it's because you want to play Titan for science like Shane did. I just think that it's the, the likely that some kind of default flavor of aggro is the place to start since there's high deck diversity and it's free entry, there's a, a likelihood that you will be able to run some people over. And so you might pick up some free wins here or there. And this kind of goes into my next point too. I just think you want to be in a place where you know how to take advantage of the stumbles that Shane was talking about. Like if your opponent's deck stumbles, if they make a suboptimal choice and fetch in the wrong order, which people do sometimes in modern when they're medium new to the format, you know, you want to be able to take advantage of that. And so it's a little bit like a GP in the sense that like day one is chaotic. There's all kinds of stuff going on. And then day two tightens up. And, you know, there's another aspect of this that goes with that. But I think you should seriously consider starting aggro and then adjusting from there if you want to if you want to do that. Yeah, I, I like the free win concept. And the free win doesn't have to be aggro, right? Like, you know, in a lot of ways, Tron can be a free win deck, which is like, you know, I'm, I'm, I have a forgiving mulligan. I create Tron. My opponent's not equipped to interact with what I'm doing very well. And I, I turn the corner in a way that they're not able to recover from. And I yeah. think that, I think that's a, that's a good rule of thumb because like you said, you're going to face off against, you know, people like me, which is like, oh, I forgot that Valakit comes into play tapped type thing where it's like, oh, I can't cast this Titan. I plan on casting. That was a misplay. <laughs> totally. I think the free win thing is big. Like you should, and this is a, this is very much a modern point. I think is that you need to know if you're attacking the meta as a deck that has free win potential or doesn't understand what your free wins are and what your backup plan is. If you are not going for a free, free win, right? Whether you're playing oops, all spells where you're just all the way in on free wins wins and you really can't do in much else or you're in that kind of like Tron zone where it's like, well, if I turn three Tron, I can 
this is what it looks like for me to get free win off of Tron. And this is what it looks like for me to have a middling game with it. But you definitely want to think about free wins here because that's just a good way for you to get ahead in this kind of weird gated qualifying system that mana traders has. I think an important thing that you made note of here, Dave, and I think is a really advantageous part of asynchronous magic. We talked about this last week, I think, which is like, you can, play your own pace in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, and this is something that I face a lot, which is like managing tilt and managing sort of like emotional responses to, to experiences in magic, which is like, I'm upset. Like my choices are to, to uninstall magic online (laughs) or or to, or to hammer play next round type thing you know there's other of course there's other choices but between in the in the experience of playing magic you can you can take a break or you can keep going right yeah and you can say like you know what am i what's my mental state right now both in terms of my emotional response to the last game and to my environment around me like am i going to get distracted by um i I know i'm going to get a phone call from you know my my parents or something like that, or, uh, anything could interrupt me at any time right now. Am I, can I, do I need to sneak this match in right now? Or should I save it for a time when I can just say, Hey, I need two hours right now. Uh, my kids are asleep on their nap or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I actually think this is a good way to practice that because you can kind of gauge like it's a little bit like playing a league, but it's higher stakes because it's a tournament. And so you get to kind of pop in and be like, really ask yourself at the end of a match or during a match, like, am I tilting right now? Am I making bad decisions? Is this something that, that I should walk away from? What does that really feel like? You know, what can I do to manage that? And I think it, it can help you when you get to like a real Grand Prix or something like that, when, you know, they're kind of emotional roller coasters because you don't get to stop, especially if you get late into a Grand Prix when you're at like round eight or something like that. And you're just like, man, I got to like, tighten up my thinking and also manage to stay calm. Um, I think it's a good way to practice it. And so I think that you should take the time that you need and use the format to your advantage. So as I look back on my experiences, five different decks, and I look back on Dave's experience, one deck and Shane's experience, 2.5 decks. I've kind of come to this conclusion that deck selection Personal deck selection is maybe the most important decision that you can make when going in, giving a run to these qualifiers. I think it's like the most important decision you can make in modern or perhaps magic is like you, that's like the biggest amount of upside you can get for free. So what I'm not saying is try to get a deck advantage over your opponents by playing burn in a room full of Tron. I'm talking about knowing how to play Tron against a room full of burn if you're a Tron player. And looking back, I kind of regret trying to do something cute with elves or Bogles before eventually going with Ponza. Because if we take that framework of the five different player personas that we outlined, coupled with how we individually did this week, I think the best thing you can do as a casual spike is play the strategy that gives you the best chance to exercise a little bit of mastery in what appears to be a pretty open metagame. With the exception of prowess is perhaps the single most represented strategy in our 31 match sample size. The majority of our matchups were a total grab bag. 
And I don't think the mastery category is the single most important factor. It's just the one I might give the most weight to in general. You should still try to find, you know, a way to exploit a metagame, to do something broken, try to get free wins, be proactive. But if you're a great Uro Omnath player, and that's the deck that you're most comfortable with and the one that you think you can make the smartest decisions in an unexpected field with, that's probably going to give you the best leg up than trying to grab whatever the fastest or perceived other best deck in the format is and try to beat up on opponents who are you know, playing Scred or Elementals. I think it's different in this format than it is in Historic, even, or Standard, for sure. Like, I think that there's a sliding scale where implicit format knowledge and matchup knowledge becomes more and more important. I think Modern is very much at that tipping point where yes, that's almost more important than trying to make sure you're on the best deck. It's like being on your best deck is the most important thing. Yeah, I think it is heavily dependent on your level of mastery of the format, right? Like if you, if you aren't a master of the format, be a master of a deck in the format as much as you can be. Cause I think like this gets into my, my point. I think I wrote after y'all were, were done with the notes today. And I don't think and it's, don't think you can be out of practice in modern and show up to one of these things and like do well, because I'll admit that I'm out of practice in modern. Like my format of choice for like early this year was pioneer. I was practicing for the GP. I was into it. Coronavirus took a lot of wind out of a lot of sales for, I think, Modern and Pioneer this year. Historic's been engaging this uh, recently for me. So I've been paying attention but not playing a lot of Modern, and it shows. Like, you lose a lot of edges when you're out of practice in a format. It's too, and like we said, it's too fast, it's too powerful to forgive lack of sharpness on your part because you have to know how decks are being built, how they're pressing and building their advantage against you, how you have to try to disrupt if you can while in a, enacting your own game plan, like what you're playing around, what you can't play around because you're gonna lose anyway. And so like, you know, I said something like, I'm gonna run Red Prowess out there and hope that I can like squeak by based on my knowledge of how to play decks like this. But that's like a fool's errand because that's not good enough in a format like modern uh, 20, you know, what, what 16 years of cards or something like that at this point. And that's a lot, that's a lot of power wrapped up in, in these decks. That's a lot of cards. Oh yeah. It's incredible. It's more than half of magic at this point. Right. So I, I want to summarize what I heard you guys say, and it's use the tournament structure to your advantage in terms of gaining focus, gaining mental clarity, uh, being able to perform your best. Don't try to metagame and open day one because you're going to see a lot of different stuff. Play what you know and or what you know how to try to get free wins with. And don't think you can waltz into back into modern and know what you're doing anymore if you're me. Ship it. Ship it question yeah please not trying to put you on the spot shane but <laughs> do you have any intention of giving it another go in the next week it's okay if you don't i'm just kind of curious i don't know um it, i think it you know that my gaming my my mental ability to play a lot of games in general is not high i play like one to two hours of games at all so that's like what two or three matches at the most like well yeah, i can probably squeak some stuff in um we'll see what happens it's a kind of a more open week but you know it's the holidays yeah. there's family around there's always something happening so i guarantee nothing but right um 
I do like the I do like the Slesnia deck. I think it's interesting. I'd like to get better at it. Uh, maybe I like so I'll sign up for uh, was it is like f- how do you say that that streamer's name? Is it Fapuls f- Fapuls? Like they're uh, I think one there. I think that they are a um, I hope known good streamer uh, in terms of their the quality of content. And I know that they're very good at the deck, so I can check that out. Francisco, I believe. Yeah, I mean, there are a bunch of people generating content there. I mean, wasn't Musasabi the person who's sort of credited with starting to popularize this deck? And they also put out a lot of good t- contents. I mean, they also have a lot of good results, I mean. But um, so there's someone you could keep an eye on as well. Yeah, you should play the Aether Vial version, Shane. I think that one's gone away at this point. I, I was playing a six-month-old deck. Why can't Shane? Cool. I'm glad we talked about this. I think it was, it's, we haven't actually done an approach much like this, and I think it's cool to do so. Uh, we, we've talked about tournament prep before, but this is, I think, much more uh, active and applicable in the, uh, the near term. So thanks for all that. Let's head on into the wind down because we have some early Kaldheim spoilers. Go to Coldland. And uh, I think we can, we can spend some time there exploring some of these early spoilers and what looks good for the formats we play, which is nearly everything now. Stay with us. We're back. It feels like forever since we've had new cards to talk about. Am I right? Like, in a, I mean, I know we're talking yeah. about new cards and like historic all the time, but for some reason, it feels like forever since Zendikar to me. It also feels like forever since we've had an actual wind down. We have this nice little branded section of the show that we rarely actually have time to do. So it's nice to... It's nice to be back. All right. So like I said, uh, let's talk about these early spoilers because I think there's already some cool cards here. There's a lot of, I think, you know, maybe standard or, or limited staples that we're seeing, but there's some there's some powerful stuff already. I want to start with the pathways. I'm going to get through these fast because, you know, I got to talk about new lands. Rakdos, Golgari, Simic, and Azorius pathways, the last four, yes, four, not five, pathways. Um, I'm particularly excited about the Rakdos and Azorius ones. Aren't these all super good? I mean, yeah, I mean, they're all great. They're all really good, but Rakdos and Azorius allied, good for Pioneer uh, because, you know, they don't have they don't have really good allied lands. So let's finish this off. I mean, I'm stoked to check out the Azorius fast land in auras in historic for sure. I do think it's interesting that I always this is the that's the only time I've ever felt like drawing a check land was like the best thing that could have happened to me when I'm playing Azorius and I'm like, let me do some of my cantrips and see what land I can draw to play for my turn. When I draw a glacial fortress, I'm like, oh, yeah, don't even wait to draw more cards. It's like the best land in the deck once you have an island out. You know what I mean? So I'm not sure that I think these are always better than fast lands, but I think that there are lots of moments where they're better than someone running a one of uh, Temple of Enlightenment or something like that. Yeah, I think they're better than the check lands, typically, in historic. I don't know. I th- I think the check lands are really good in two color decks. So we'll see. I think Rakdos, it's very it's going to be very good in there. I do wonder a little bit about like if Saltai will run if or how many of these they will run. But we'll see. Their mana base seems pretty perfect already, so I don't know if committing to a single land is really going to help them that much. That's kind of how I feel, too. All right, lands are boring. I hate opening up a rare land in in my booster pack. I want real cards. Cards like Pyre of Heroes. Stan, would you like to read this one to us? Sure. So this is an artifact. Costs two generic mana, and it has this ability, pay two, tap, sack a creature. 
search your library for a creature card that shares a creature type with the sacrificed creature and has CMC equal to one plus the sacrificed creatures CMC. Put that card onto the battlefield, shuffle your library, activate this ability only time, only anytime you could cast a sorcery. Okay, so it's birthing pod, but tribal, <laughs> and it costs an extra mana to use it. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it's birthing pod. <laughs> birthing did birthing pod tap? I honestly forget. Yes. Okay. Birthing pod tapped, and also birthing pod it was only at sorcery speed. I just checked. So is the secret to fixing all the old broken band modern cards just making them tribal? Yes. Yes, that's why Cavern of Souls is, is so weak. Tribal Gataxian Probe. Ooh. <laughs> I mean, this is probably good, right? Like, this this has potential. Uh, the, the more cards there are in particular tribes, the more reason there is to build decks around them. Do some cool stuff. This is aggressively costed. It's an artifact and not a creature, which I think has been the thing that's been a big stumbling block for a lot of these cards. Now, there are some more main deckable tools against permanents like this now, specifically Skyclave Apparition, that is around in all the formats that we play right now, that's better against random uh, random non-creature permanent payoff dot deck. But it feels like it should be breakable, breakable in some way. There's got to be some tribe that wants to be able to do this. I mean, the first thing that I think about is like some way to use changelings as part of your chain or to just name changelings or something and get a bunch of stuff. But um, I think there's a lot of stuff going on. I think that people like to think about goblins as a tribe that has so many different things going on with it, but goblins is super powerful, especially the um, Snoop combo version that I don't know if this is really going to get you there. Maybe. I mean, it's nice to tutor stuff up. So maybe this is a good fallback for goblin matron or something like that. I don't know. But this just has, you know, I'm not a person who breeds, brews these kind of like creature combo synergy decks, but it does feel like something that could have some applications. I mean, what if this was like a thing that went into some kind of weird humans combo deck or something? I I don't even know. There's so many different tribes. And shapeshifters, especially in modern, that can basically operate as almost any tribal enabler. So, yeah, that's that's what I mentioned with with changelings, but I, I maybe I meant shapeshifters. Yeah, being able to to work your way off of or from or to Mariner, you know, is yeah. is an interesting part in the whole chain. Could this be in slivers? <laughs> like, I mean, like, yeah, like, no, no, for real. Like, there's there's a lot. Like, there's a lot of like weird unearth stuff. Like, you could, I think, you get some like cool sliver chains going. Like, this could be cool. Tribal episode revisited. <laughs> maybe we can do a. a a collab with uh, the Faithless Brewing Bros where we revisit all the tribes we did a week ago, but just with Pyre of Heroes. I totally agree. So Pyre of Heroes, I think you should be keeping an eye on it to make some waves much more than, say, a card like Vanifar that I loved. I guarantee, I guarantee there'll be a very early Faithless Brewing episode involving Pyre of Heroes. Yeah. All right, let's get through these last cards. So next up, Sarulf, Realm Eater. One colorless, black, green. It's the mean creature from NeverEnding Story. Legendary creature, Wolf. Whenever a permanent and opponent controls is put into a graveyard from the battlefield, put a plus one, plus one counter on Sarulf, Realm Eater. At the beginning of your upkeep, if Sarulf has one or more plus one, plus one counters on it, you may remove all of them. If you do, exile each other non-land permanent with converted mana cost less than or equal to the number of counters removed this way. 
three three. It's a three three it, for three. It is. It is a rare. Does this yeah. read like a rare to you? I mean, maybe these days. Yeah, these days there's a lot of text on these rares. This card rules. Okay. This this card like the more I read it the the happier I was with this card because like the high floor high ceiling right yeah. okay like I mean maybe not in mo- like maybe just a, a three three for three in modern is not, like the the dream here but okay I'm gonna give you a couple pieces of the buffalo here that are very important okay yes, please and you tell me what you think about them one it exiles things it doesn't just destroy awesome. them I love exile we know how powerful that is hugely important I think. Yes. The, the other thing is it triggers off of any permanence that an opponent controls yep. that put into a graveyard. And that includes things like fetch lands. Yep. So whenever or, a permanence. Yeah. Or if you manage to, for example, in auras, kill something that your up has a bunch of auras on it. Like if you're on, if you fatal push your opponent's core spirit dancer and it has four auras on it, Sarulf gets what five counters or something like that. Like that's pretty wild right there. Ah, woo. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I'm going to say like, I don't think this is some new modern powerhouse, but let's look at this in terms of how you would play this card, how I imagine you would play this card in the decks that would play it. If there's no permanence for you to remove, that's good. You have a three, three on an empty board. Right. That's fine. If there are permanents to remove, you then cast removal spells and beef this thing up while also making it somewhat frustrating to cast things back onto the board into. Is this historic Tarmogoyf for historic Black Green Rock? I mean, it's it's potentially better in that it's not just a beater. It's like a Goyf slash Liliana, right? I mean, in, in its own way, which is like, I'm doing stuff that my deck wants to do, which is removing your permanence, and my creature is getting larger. And then if you get things back onto the battlefield that are small enough CMC that I care about exiling them, I can do so, right? Whether the, and, and you're probably still able to say, I have a, a few removal spells left. I maybe have a Maelstrom Pulse or an Assassin's Trophy or any kind of thing. And I'm not saying like this is like the ultimate corner turner. I'm saying this is a piece of a deck like, you know, some bgx based deck that's going to play a card like this and get a lot of value out of it note that the counters that you can remove from this card handles all non-land permanents which is like you get rid of weird artifacts you get rid of weird enchantments whatever yeah and it's less than or equal to the number of counters on it which i sort of misread because i thought it was ratchet bomb which only kills exactly the same number right it doesn't kill less than this kills less than as well Bonkers. and and not itself it right. remains right that's nuts that's even wilder than i thought it was yeah so like you know maybe the opponent has like a witch's oven and or they have like a vehicle or two that's been like annoying your sorcery speed removal or like you know something like that and it's just like well bye like you don't get to use this vehicle anymore you don't get this uh your search for Ascanta that sometimes shows up in historic or something like that i think there's a lot going on here i think it's a very cool card i do think that it's more of a historic piece it could be a like a bit of a defining piece, I think, in historic, but I think it's, you know, it's got a lot of fail states in modern because it's pretty easy to kill. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you never know. One of, it could make sense. Okay, Stan, will you have any thoughts on this card before we move on? I never think about Golgari cards. Seems <laughs> fair. Seems cool. Unless they're elves. I'm more of a cat guy than a wolf guy. Totally fair. I have more thoughts about this next card. Why don't you read it? 
Realm Walker. Tuna green for a shapeshifter. Changeling, this card is every creature type. As Realm Walker enters the battlefield, choose a creature type. You may look at the top card of your library at any time. You may cast creature spells of the chosen type from the top of your library. It is a 2-3. Cool card. Glad that you you picked this because otherwise I was going to have to. (laughs) I mean, this is green. It costs three mana. Even if you're not putting it in a devoted elves deck, even though it is a tribal card, like maybe you're putting it into some other green tribe, you could theoretically, this could go in a bird deck with the bad bird of paradise, right? And you're casting this on turn two, and then you have a turn two future sight. And I think that's pretty cool. This is Goblin Snoop. This is just the green Goblin Snoop. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't grab their abilities, so it is a little less in that sense. But yeah, I mean, draw engines are good. I mean, we saw that in the historic you know pt a couple weeks ago when snoop plus horn was kind of a big tribal focus on like making goblins work i mean given that that what's that card called is it called hunter's horn or what's the herald's horn herald's horn like this plus herald's horn puts a whole bunch of different options on the table as far as like having an eight pack of tribal draw cards available to you so it's like what deck do you want to build around it you know, again, maybe more ap- applicable and historic than in modern, where in modern, maybe you're putting this in a niche deck like Elementals, perhaps, where you could do some interesting stuff there. Elves. Why not? Yeah. I mean, Elves, too. I want to make sure that Elves doesn't have a card like this that already exists. For some reason, there's something in the back of my mind that makes me wonder if there was a card already printed. Maybe it's just really expensive. But... um this card, I just think it's good. It's going to be all over the place. I think this might be one of those cards that even something like modern humans could run on the sideboard against heavy removal decks where mm-hmm. it's like, hey, uh, I stick this late. I refill the board type thing where it's like you I ran you out of removal and I can play this when I have like five or six mana around and I just sort of redeploy to the board and everything's pretty good. There's a lot of options here, which is good. It's a powerful ability. I think it's going to see play. Yeah, I think it's powerful enough to be worth it as a three CMC creature, basically. Yeah, I mean, what you know, Kai Guy in our chat just mentioned that you can hit this with Coco, so you can hit this with Coco to draw even more cards. Seems yeah. okay. <laughs> okay, we got one last card before we get out of here tonight that we thought was interesting and worth talking about, and that is Kaya the Inexorable, which I just thought was a cool card. So it's three colorless, white, black. Kaya's plus one is put a ghost form counter on up to one target non-token creature. It gains when this creature dies or is put into exile, return it to its owner's hand and create a one, one spirit token with flying. It has a minus three that's exile target non-land permanence. And it has a minus seven that says when you get an emblem at the end of your upkeep, uh, you get an emblem that says at the end of your upkeep, you may cast a legendary spell from your hand, from your graveyard or from among cards you own in exile without paying its mana cost. How many loyalty counters does it come down with, Dave? Comes down with five, which is pretty good. It's a good number. Some good loyalty. Yeah. I mean, I when I looked at this, I was like, this could be a cool fit for a Planeswalker heavy deck in Pioneer or Historic more than anything else. Don't think yeah. it has the power level for Modern. But aren't all of them just good? Aren't all the abilities on this just good as long as you're playing a deck with creatures? Sure. I mean, it's like, I know that a few people in the slack are pretty ant about this card and i'm kind of like the things it does are mildly expensive for you know it's kind of for, for five cmc like i would hope that it's exiling a target non-land permanent you know for the minus type thing but it's going to be a good piece of value in a deck where it's not the centerpiece i think like this is not a nissa who shakes the world type thing but it doesn't necessarily have to be to be playable 
Yeah. I mean, I just think of some like Esper Yorian stuff with this card. Right on. Yeah, right on. Because, you know, you can, it's, it's good to blink. It's, yeah, I mean, why not? I mean, you can recast Kaya with it when you minus seven it the next turn. You can minus seven it, get the emblem, go to your next turn and recast the Kaya that you got the emblem off of for free. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's weird stuff, but I think very, very cool. It's, it's wild that we get to evaluate cards for an all-new format and one that we're just kind of getting to know as well. It's going to be a pretty interesting spoiler season, which starts, I believe, the first week of January when we have to start looking at all these new cards and wondering, how is this going to shake up Historic? Is this fitting into any decks or could this help create a brand new deck for our format that's growing in two directions simultaneously? Yeah, I think Historic is still in that really weird spot too where it's just like, it's always like... It's, it's going to be like either a set makes a huge dent in historic or nothing happens like and maybe that's like not an interesting thing to say, but it, it feels kind of like anything is on the table as far as the amount of disruption that historic can have where it feels a little less so in other formats sometimes just because historic is in that medium size of the number of sets that are in the format right now, like a new cheap removal spell could make all the difference in historic suddenly. Yeah. But anyway, like abrupt decay. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, first spoilers, thought it was fun to talk about a few of them. I don't know if any of these are like slam dunks, but I think these are definitely all possible fits for for the formats, non-rotating formats that we cover. And we'll be look forward to getting more. And listen, you don't need to slam dunk to score two points. Like a layup is fine as well. Yeah. I like the slams, tomahawk jams, boom shakalaka. He's on fire. He's in the paint. That wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the pod, pick our brain on something in magic, modern, pioneer, historic, or beyond. You can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email the dive down at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon over at patreon.com slash the dive down. Joining at any tier gets you into our super secret Slack channel. We're doing our first ever legacy tournament tomorrow, guys. By the time people hear this episode, it'll be too late to join the legacy tournament, but we're firing historic events, modern FNMs, you name it. It feels like there's a community for it on our Slack. So check that out. Shout out to Mana Traders for sponsoring the Dive Down. If you like today's episode, you want to participate in the tournament, and you think you have a shot to go all the way, you can make more money if you sign up for Mana Traders. And if you use coupon code THEDIVEDOWN, all one word, you get 15% off your first three months of renting Magic Online cards. Also, if you play Magic Arena, you can support the Dive Down without spending any money by using our affiliate link to download the free deck tracking software over at untapped.thedivedown.com. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Space Flood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and enjoy your holiday!